Uh, so this morning, if you have your Bible with you, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to join, uh, join me in the book of Luke, uh, the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at Luke 19. We're also going to dip back just a little bit uh, into the Old Testament uh, today uh, for, for just a moment. And uh, we'll also probably look at uh, chapter 18 as well. Um, but uh, just before we do get started, just wanted to check in and see how everybody's doing. Everybody doing Okay. Because I feel like it's, you know, I haven't seen you since last year. So, um, you know, just wanted to see. Man, that joke never gets old, does it? And you're like, yeah, it, it gets old. It's, it's really, really old. So, but, uh, but anyway, I had, I had to use it. You got to have a cheesy preacher joke there. I saved all my cheesy preacher jokes until I was actually here. <laughs> now you got to put up with them. Uh, so, but anyway. Uh, but no, I pray your New Year's off to a good start. And I pray that everything's, uh, everything's going well. It's only six, six, seven days old there. And uh, so it's still got that new baby smell to it. 2024 does. Um, anybody make any resolutions this year? I'm not asking you to tell us what they are because you probably already broke them. Uh, but I kind of stopped doing the resolution thing a while ago when I realized that uh, it, just, it just caused me to have to go to the Lord in repentance a whole lot more for not keeping the resolution. You know, I will say the gym has been a lot busier this week. Um, but from what I hear, it usually balances out after February. Uh, that's at least what I hear because I'm one of those that are gone by February anyway uh, there. But, um, but all joking aside, though, the new year... Uh, this new year has, has brought a lot of new things for our church, right? Uh, we are a new body uh, in, in Christ coming together. It may not feel that new because we've been doing this for about a year and God was already knitting our hearts together and already feeling like one for a long time. But, uh, but it's a new year with new, new possibilities, new things going on. Um, but uh, we also mentioned that one of the areas that we want to press into and want to focus on in 2024 is the importance of being prepared at all times. <coughs> I knew this was going to happen. <coughs> um, if you're with Graceway, you know that uh, <coughs> usually around this time of year, I start to get choked up when I talk. So uh, anyway, <coughs> and I forgot to bring water up here. If somebody could give a cold, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, that'd be great. Um, anyway, got my, got my cough drops with me today. I feel fine until I start windsucking, like a preacher does, and then we're good. But anyway, we're talking about pressing into sharing our story, right? Because we all have a story. We all should hopefully have a story about how we came to Christ and what our life has been like <coughs> since Christ. And that is probably the best way that we can share our faith. It's important that we share our faith. It's important that we come to a place that with the conversations, the relationships that we have in our life, especially with the people that are closest to us, we should be able to feel comfortable, thank you, to talk about what matters the most to us. And if we've been saved, <coughs> we come to understand that our salvation should be what matters the most to us. So the gospel should be on our lips. We should be looking to have gospel conversations, especially with those people that we love and would hope to spend eternity with one day as well. But statistics tell us that that's probably one of the hardest things to do for Christians, 
is to engage in a gospel conversation. Statistics tell us by LifeWay Research that eight, almost eight out of ten Christians, people that profess to be Christians, will live and die without ever sharing the gospel with another person. Eight out of ten that, share, that, that, that say they have a faith in Christ will never share their faith with another person. And of that eight out of ten, 70% of the people say <clears throat> that the reason is because they are fearful that they're not well-equipped enough to be able to share it properly. They say, I don't want to misguide somebody. Well, I want to give you some good encouragement. And here's the thing. With numbers like that, it would be irresponsible to assume that those numbers don't also spill into this room, right? You may say, well, well, we're part of the greatest church. You should hopefully believe that, right? Well, yeah, but this church is, is right, right? Yeah, but those numbers still spill into this room. So there's probably a lot of people in here that say, man, I, I get hesitant when it comes to sharing my faith. And may even feel like, I don't know if I'm well prepared enough. And I'm not talking about, do you know and can quote the Roman road? Or do you know the three circles? Or do you know how to you know, share Jesus without fear? And all the systems that people give us to be able to share the gospel, right? But many people feel ill-equipped. Here's the deal. I want to encourage you today that you're more equipped than you think that you are. And I can show you this by two questions. Number one, are you a Christian? You don't have to answer that out loud. But are you a Christian? If you answered that question, <coughs> you know that Jesus is your Savior. <coughs> you know that he walks with you and talks with you. You have a relationship with him. If you answer that question, yes, here's the second question. How'd that happen? How'd that come to be? <coughs> and if you can share with somebody how that came to be, then you are equipped to be able to share the gospel. <coughs> See, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this is how you know that every sermon is complete when a Spurgeon quote comes up. <laughs> Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, and you'll see it on the screen. He said, evangelism is really just as simple as one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. That's really what sharing the gospel is about. It's, I found Christ. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. Let me tell you where I found him, how I found him, and what he's done in my life since. Because all of us spiritually were in that beggar position. And if I'm a beggar and if I found sustenance and something to, that, 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 that sustained my life and I know there's an endless supply if they just go to the source, why would I not share that with someone else? It's not like we're worried that the bread's going to run out and there won't be any for me when I come back because the bread's never going to run out. So we need to be able to learn to share our story and share our story uh, well. And every one of us have a story right? And each gospel story has three parts. It's simple, right? What was my life like before Jesus Christ? That's the first part of our story. The second part of our story is how I met Jesus. And then the third part of that story is what has my life been like since Jesus? How has Jesus changed my life? Now, if you'll see those three points on the, on the screen there. What's the common thread in those three parts of the story? Jesus, right? If you're looking to say, uh, me. That's a little, no, it's Jesus. Let's go a little bit higher than us, okay? The, th the common thread in our story is Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes our story what it is. And, and the moment we come to Jesus, everything changes. Jesus is the centerpiece of our story because until we meet Christ, we don't have a story. <clears throat> our story is a story of tragedy. Our story is a story of spiritual death of spiritual wanting, of spiritual starvation, of captivity to sin. But once we come to Christ, it changes everything, everything. 
No one that comes to Jesus remains the same. Do you believe that? We have to believe. No one who comes to Jesus remains the same. This morning, I want to begin a series. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking through Scripture at some people that Jesus touched their lives in different ways, but the result was the same. Their lives were forever changed. You see, you may not come to Christ under the same uh, under the same kind of duress. I mean, some of you may have come to Christ during a moment of tragedy. Some of you may have come to Christ when you were a child. Some of you may have come to Christ out of addiction or out of some horrible story in your life. But we all have a story. I came to Christ. That's when things changed. It's not about us. It's not even about where we came from. It's about who brought us there. It's about Christ. And here's what the Bible tells us, and Pastor Chris shared this with our kids just a minute ago, and this is our key verse as we work through this entire month, is this. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, then they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. I want you to key in on this. If you are in Christ, you are not the same. So I may feel the same. No, you know, angels didn't come down from heaven the moment I received Christ as my Savior. I didn't, get a, I didn't get a salvation certificate in the mail that was postmarked from the human resources offices in heaven, right? But when we are saved, we are made new. It's a newness that we may not even realize, but it comes to show itself as we grow in Him. It says, old things are passed away, and the new has come. See, everyone that Jesus became involved with in the Gospels was changed by His presence in their life. <clears throat> they were never the same, and I know that I keep saying that, but that's important because repetition is the key to us found, founding something in our heart. When Jesus touches your life, you're not the same. You're just not the same. So over the next month, we're going to look at some of these people, and, and, and again, when you come to Christ, you're never the same. And so I'm going to look this morning actually at two guys by way of comparison. And we're going to dig back into the Old Testament, look at a guy there, and then we're going to be spending most of our time looking at a guy in the New Testament. But I want you to consider, I'm going to read two passages, one from the Old Testament, we're going to, we're going to see two different men. And I want you to see if you can find some of the commonalities or the differences between these two men, the way Scripture shows them. First one comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1-2. through 2. It says, There was a prominent man of Benjamin, or of the tribe of Benjamin, who was named Kish, the son of Abel. Now, Kish is not the one we're talking about. We're going to find out who it is in a second. And he was the son of Zeor, and he was the son of Becherath, and he was the son of Athaniah, and he was the son of a Benjamite. If you're, if you're expecting a child, there's a great list of possible names you might want to choose. Right? Here we go. He had a son named Saul. And Saul was what? Saul was an impressive young man. There was no one that was more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else in the entire nation. Now, let's flip over to Luke chapter 19 and see in our text in verse number 2, we're going to be introduced to another man. There was a man that was named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, or he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So what are, some of the, what are some of the things that we see in the difference between Saul and in the difference between Zacchaeus? First of all, one's from the Old Testament, one's from the New Testament. So that's a difference, right? But the other one was tall, right? The other one was short. Saul tall, can't get that one wrong. Zacchaeus, I don't know, it's a long name but a short dude, um, is all you can really say, right? But one of the most famous descriptions of Zacchaeus is that he was, we all remember the song, right? Zacchaeus was a, it was a wee little man, that's right. 
Who's a wheeler? He's the first Irish guy in the Bible. All right? He's wee. He's itty b, right? So Saul is tall. The Bible says that he's head and shoulders above all the others in Israel. He's looking, uh, he, he's good looking, he's strong, he's athletic, he's smart. He's the captain of the football team at Jerusalem High School, right? He's homecoming king, class president, voted most likely to succeed by a senior class. After high school, he graduates, he marries his <coughs> high school sweetheart, was a captain of the, of the cheerleading squad, right? Graduates top in his class and eventually becomes the king of Israel. He's never probably experienced rejection in his life. He's never had somebody look at him and look down on him. He's just had it made his whole life. Yeah, Guys like that just infuriate me. They really do, right? He was never left out in the pickup games on the, on the basketball court or anything. Then you got Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, a little bit of a different story. Most famous descriptive we're given of him is he's this short little guy. That's what the Bible says. The Bible rarely says much about physical appearance, but it did about Saul and it did about Zacchaeus. And I think that's something that we have to come to understand. Why would the Bible put that in there, right? See, the average man's height in the New Testament times was about five foot three. Most of us are above average in here for the time that they were alive back then. So when the Bible says that Zacchaeus was short, that means he was very, very short. Matter of fact, a lot of scholars and commentators think that he may have even suffered from dwarfism. And so if you can imagine, <clears throat> if you've ever grown up being vertically challenged, you know that, that you get a lot of jabs, you get a lot of ribbing, people laugh and make jokes about it. And after a while, it probably gets to you a little bit, right? So the differences we see between these two guys, you got one guy who's well-respected. He's impressive, the Bible says. He's the total package. And then you got this other guy, Zacchaeus, who's just... You know, if you don't look down, you're not going to see him. He's just kind of a guy that's not necessarily respected, but it's probably like a walking punchline that people like to make fun of sometimes. But Zacchaeus and Saul have a little similarities too. Both of them are Jewish. They're both sons of Abraham. Jesus will say that about Zacchaeus in a minute. <clears throat> both of them become government officials in their lives. And the biggest common denominator we see comes from our third text, second, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 7, where it reads this. Their common denominator is in the way that God looked at him, not in the way that people looked at him. When God looked at Saul and Zacchaeus, the biggest thing he saw was exactly the same. The Lord said in verse number 7 in 1 Samuel 16, he says, The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I've rejected him. Humans don't see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. See, while Saul and Zacchaeus couldn't have been more different in the eyes of everyone else, in the eyes of God, they were exactly the same because God had given them a heart. And they were exactly the same because they'd both been born of woman and they were of flesh. And they both had a need for him. Saul, in all of his stature and in all of his impressiveness, could not bring himself closer to God. Zacchaeus in all of his vertically being challenged, in all of his richness, in all of his authority he had in the government, could not bring himself closer to salvation. That had to come by a changed heart that only comes through Jesus Christ. And if you know much about Saul, you realize that Saul, while he had everything in the gene pool that God, he lucked out on everything in the gene pool that God could give him, he had a lot of trouble giving God his heart. But Zacchaeus, what we're going to look at today, although he had a rough upbringing, we're going to look at that and maybe use a little bit of our imaginations to think about some of that today. Although he had that, he had 
come to a point in his life where he wholeheartedly gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And at that moment, everything in his life changed. You see, when Jesus gets our heart, everything changes. That's the key to our story. And once Jesus grabs your heart, man, you can't help but tell the story of how he changed it. So let's look at a couple of things from Zacchaeus that we have to understand that we can apply to our lives. The first thing is, is that the love of Jesus Christ is strong enough and warm enough to soften the cold and callous heart. No matter how cold and how callous the heart may be, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you've experienced in your life and in your upbringing, the love of Jesus Christ can break all those walls down. Because the love of Jesus Christ looks past every wall that we try to put up. It looks past that and breaks that down. I want you to stop and just think about the life that Zacchaeus must have had while he was growing up. We, you know, we imagine Saul's life, right? You know, he, he must have had the world by its tail. Must have had the world just like anything he wanted, anything. I mean, everybody loved him. Everybody wanted him on their team. Everybody just, matter of fact, when, Saul, or when Samuel was told to go find the king, everybody said, it's going to have to be Saul, man. It's going to have to be Saul because obviously he's tall enough that we're going to see the crown above everybody else's head walking around, right? We'll know the king's there. That was a joke. You'll get it later. <clears throat> so imagine what life must have been for Zacchaeus. How much people probably made fun of him when he went to school. He was probably never picked to be on the school basketball team, right? Or even in the games at recess. All the girls probably looked down on him, like, like literally looked down on him, right? He probably got picked on. He probably got bullied. He probably got overlooked. Everyone laughed at Zacchaeus because that's what kids do. That's what people do with people that look different or act different. They laugh at things that they don't understand. And over a time, it begins to wear on a person, doesn't it? <clears throat> Even if you know that somebody's joking, it begins to wear on you, begins to mess with your psyche. And you can imagine that all of this served to put a huge chip on Zacchaeus' shoulder. Probably outcast and probably laughed at and probably derided. So when, they came, so when he became an adult and all of a sudden the Roman Empire who's occupying, occupying the Jews say, hey, we're looking for tax collectors. They put a help wanted sign outside the tax collector's office. Zacchaeus jumps at the chance. Literally, he jumps to grab the application off. The, never mind. Okay. <clears throat> so, see, I'm, I'm making fun of him too. All right. Right. <laughs> Don't quit my day job. Right. No, he jumps at the chance. He's like, I'm going to be a tax collector. And the Bible says he's one of the best because he rises through the ranks to become the chief tax collector. So Zacchaeus, understand, Zacchaeus as a kid growing up and in Jewish society, man, he was looked down on. He was looked at nothing, like nothing much. He was overlooked. He was passed by. But now with this opportunity, now he has authority. Now he has power. And now he also has Roman soldiers walking around with him as bodyguards. He's got, he's got weight to throw around. And now he can start getting some vengeance on some of the people that maybe had treated him wrongly. You see, tax collectors were the most feared and hated people in Jewish society at those times. Outside of being a Gentile to a Jew, equal to being a Gentile, and a pagan was being a tax collector. See, they were seen as sellouts because they betrayed their own people. <clears throat> you see, when Rome came in and they took over, what they would do is they would set up a military outpost and they would also set up a tax office because the way the Romans kept increasing their military and their, and their territorial power was they would come into a place, take it over by military force, and then tax them to death. And so what they would do, and they were smart in this, if they were wanting to take over, they would choose from themselves, from within the people they had conquered, people who were willing to cross over the aisle and say, hey, I'll work for the occupier and be your tax collector. And here's one thing that they did. 
They said, if you're a tax collector, we're not going to put you on our payroll, but we're going to give you the authority that whatever surcharge or interest you want to put on the taxes that you're, that you're collecting, we're going to back you in that. We're going to give you a soldier to walk around with you, be your bodyguard. So what would happen is tax collectors would knock at the door and say, you owe X amount of dollars. Now, Rome may have only wanted Y amount of dollars. And the tax collector could charge whatever he wants. The tax collectors let greed run wild and run rampant. There was no cap on what they could charge in their surcharge. So when, if you imagine Zacchaeus, if he's got this chip on his shoulder going up and knocking on somebody's door and saying, you owe this, there is no recourse for them to say, no, I don't think I owe that. Because now he has the power to say, you either go to prison or you pay up. And they couldn't say no to him. So now he's getting vengeance, and all of a sudden his greed is stacking up. And when we come to see Zacchaeus in our passage, what we see is the Bible says he's the chief tax collector, and he being a chief tax collector had made him a very, very rich man. But it still hadn't changed the brokenness inside of Zacchaeus. And that's the point we have to look at. They were known as greedy. They were known as dishonest thieves. Now, how can you, can you imagine... Some of you might be sitting here thinking, you know what? If I was in occupied Rome at that time, I think I'd want to be a tax collector. Most people didn't want to be. Because in those days, most people who said, hey, I'll be a tax collector, that meant their family was going to turn on them, their whole society was going to turn on them because they were seen as a sellout, they were seen as a traitor. Matter of fact, in Jewish culture, and Jesus even backed this up, when he, over in Matthew chapter 18, he said when he was talking about how to run with somebody who would not seek repentance, he said, if you bring it before the church and they still don't repent, then treat them as a Gentile or a pagan or as a tax collector, meaning outcast them, stay away from them. When tax collectors came, everybody else ran away. So this is the way Zacchaeus chose to live his life. He's like, you know what? If I'm going to be outcast anyway, I might as well get rich by doing it. And he thought that that would fulfill his life. But it's highly likely that Zacchaeus didn't know love apart from what Jesus ever showed him in his life. So imagining how he must have lived, what makes a person turn on, turn on his own people like that. <clears throat> he probably didn't know love apart from the true love that Jesus showed him. You can imagine that a guy who's got a lot of money probably did what a lot of people, a lot of jerks with money do. They try to buy people's love. Maybe he threw parties and said, hey, come to my party. Oh, by the way, if you don't come to my party, I'm going to raise your taxes. Maybe, I don't know. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus didn't understand what real love was, what a real relationship was. You see, he was just an ancient thug who found his way in the world and thought that all the money and all the power were going to suffice and heal his broken heart. But he realized that it wasn't. Why do we know that? Because our text says that when Jesus came, he was desperate to see Jesus. So much so that he was willing to climb up in a tree so that he could just get a visual sight of Christ. Why? There's a couple of different reasons. Number one, once Jesus started working and healing and changing people's lives, word began to spread, and it spread to Jericho as well. Some scholars actually believe it could have possibly been that, <clears throat> that as a tax collector, Zacchaeus knew Matthew, who was one of the disciples that Jesus had called, who had left his tax collector's table to follow Christ. So it could have been that Zacchaeus was one of the guys that was invited over to Matthew's house when Jesus had come to speak to them, and he was already burning in his heart. We don't know exactly for certain, but what we do know is he had already identified Jesus as someone who cared. He already had identified Jesus as somebody who his heart yearned to meet and her heart yearned to see. So what did he do? He climbed up because he had to get a look at it, right? 
See, our hearts, whether we realize it or not, our hearts are yearning for the love that Christ offers. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher back in, back in the day, and he said this. He says that God has put a God-shaped hole inside of each one of our hearts. It's a vacuum. It's a void. And it's a shape that only God can fill. Only Christ can fill. And you can try to fill with money. You can try to fill it with sex. You can try to fill it with drugs. You can try to fill it with power. You can try to fill it with just doing a lot of good things and being liked by everybody. But the only thing that's going to fill that void inside your soul and inside your heart is Jesus Christ himself. God has created each one of us with that void. And Zacchaeus was feeling that void and feeling that vacuum big time. I wonder sometimes if some of us are like that, if we feel that void, but we're trying to fill it with all kinds of different things. <clears throat> the only thing that fills that void is to surrender to the love of Christ and to the lordship of Christ and give him place in your heart. You see, the broken, the hurting, the sin-sick heart of man is always yearning for the healing hand of God. And Jesus is looking for a heart that's going to respond willingly to his love. And here's the thing about our Savior. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't force his way into us. God could have made it to where, you know, everybody, you're all going to be saved regardless. No, this is the part of God's love for us as he gives us that free will. Some look at it and say, you know what, if God was really loving, he'd force us all. That's not love. Love is giving us that, that choice to say, will I come to him, will I accept him, or will I reject it? Jesus is looking for a heart that will respond willingly. <clears throat> Look what it says in chapter, in chapter 19, verse number 5. It says, when Jesus came to the place, the place where Zacchaeus was, he stops and he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down here because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. I want you to imagine how Zacchaeus must have felt at that point. Have you ever wondered why of all the people in that crowd that day, Jesus stops and he notices Zacchaeus, the, probably the most hated person in the city of Jericho at that point, and he says, hey, I want to come to your house. This is probably the very first time that anybody willingly said, hey, Zacchaeus, let's hang out. Zacchaeus responds to it, right? And he comes down from the sycamore tree. Probably, it probably took him a long time to climb up in that tree, but it only took him a few seconds to get down. <clears throat> Look at verse number six. It says, so he quickly came down, and he welcomed Christ joyfully. You got to think, again, he probably never seen anybody say, hey, I want to be around you. And Jesus, the very one that he was hoping he would be able to meet, identified him in the crowd and said, I'm here for you. It's necessary for me to go to your house. It only took him seconds to get down from that tree. The Bible says he came down quickly because he was ready to receive Christ into his house, but also it's a testament to the fact that he was ready to receive Christ into his heart. He was ready to submit and to surrender to whatever Christ wanted because Christ didn't, didn't say, hey, I'd like to come to your house. He says, I have to go to your house. It wasn't a request. It was a command. This is the first step of Zacchaeus' obedience to Jesus as Lord. The fact that it was, it was Jesus asking was miraculous to him, and ultimately it was going to change his life. Now note how joyfully he says he received him joyfully. He was willing and happy to receive Christ because he was open to him. It reminds us of what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. And Laodicea, the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation, was kind of one that was just kind of like, you know, yeah, Jesus is good, but we're okay anyway, right? I'm not daily depending on God because I've got all my needs met already. Kind of reminds us of the way the church is today. Right, kind of the relationship with Christ. Yeah, he's good, but you know, 
I don't depend on him for every single thing. I'm not desperate for him. Here's what he said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, see, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and I will eat with him and he with me. What's the position that it puts Christ at? It's on the outside of the door of our heart and he's knocking. Meaning, I want to be your savior. But he's not got a battering ram. He's not got a lockpick set. He doesn't have a tactical unit out ready, ready to swoop in. He's saying, you've got to come and you've got to open the door and you've got to receive me. This was the knocking moment for Zacchaeus when Jesus says, I'm coming, I need to come to your house today. Zacchaeus opened his heart wide and Jesus came in quick. That's the moment of salvation for us, folks. When we open our heart to Jesus and say, you are the only one that can fill this void. You are the only one that can change my life. You are the only one that I truly long for. So the question is, have we answered that knocking like, like, like Zacchaeus? The second thing that we see outside of the fact that Jesus' heart melts down, Jesus' love melts the cold, callous heart, is that Jesus will purify our sin-sick heart. Jesus purifies our sin-sick heart. Our heart, what we have to understand, is desperately sick and dirty. The Bible says that. It says our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can actually know it? It's a rhetorical question <clears throat> with one answer. The only one who knows our heart, out, not even us, the only one who knows our heart is the one who implanted the heart in us, is God Almighty. He's the one who knows the heart. He knows exactly what the heart needs to be healed, and he has exactly what the heart needs to heal it. And we're not going to find it anywhere else. See, Jesus, only Jesus can purify the sin-sick heart. Look at verse number 7 of our text. Luke 19 says, All who saw what Jesus had done and the interaction that took, took place between him and Zacchaeus, they began to what? They began to cheer? They began to be like, Oh, Zacchaeus! Good for you. No, they began to complain. Why? Why? Because he says, well, Jesus is going to stay with a sinful man. Here's this righteous man, this righteous teacher, this holy man, the son of God is going to go stay at the house of a sinful man, which by the way, in that culture, who you went with and who you ran with said a lot about you. And so that's the way people were judging Christ. Why would Jesus, if he's truly the son of God, want to spend any time at all with such a sinner? Like the most sinful, hated man here in our city. The people, religious people at that, were shocked that Jesus would pal around with someone. But what does the Bible tell us that Jesus is? He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Why did Jesus go to Zacchaeus that day? Because Zacchaeus needed him more than anybody else and was ready for him more than anybody else in that crowd that day. See, they'd seen the evidence of Zacchaeus' broken, dirty, greedy heart. They had all fallen prey to it at one point or another. Every one of them had beef with Zacchaeus. Every one of them. <clears throat> he had gained a big reputation with people of being a bad guy. Even though he was a little guy, he gained a big, bad reputation. They'd been a victim of his ways. The Bible proclaims that the condition of our heart will dictate our actions. And see, without Christ, before we're too hard on Zacchaeus, without Christ, this is us. Our heart, we may not be tax collectors. We may not be ripping people off left and right. We may not be, we may not be exa exactly like acting out our sinful condition the way Zacchaeus did. But if we are sinners, we act out our sinful condition. 
And Jesus did not, did not look at the actions. He looked at the heart of Zacchaeus. And in spite of his sinful condition, his heart was ready for a savior. You see, he grabs our heart so he can heal it and cleanse it. When the people said that he's too far gone, he's a traitor, he's not even one of us anymore, we've cast him out. Jesus, why in the world would you even pay attention to him? Jesus said, he is not only one of us, he is one of mine. He is now part of my kingdom. Salvation has come to this house, he said, and I have sought him out to save him. Look what it says in verse number 10, 9 and 10. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, and it says, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And if Jesus is coming to seek and save who, those who are lost, why not start with the ones who are the lostest among the lost? We see that Jesus saves Zacchaeus that day at his house. He heals his sin-sick heart, and he purifies it, and all of a sudden, everything for him is different. He has a new love. His perspective changes. He's been given more than he could ever deserve in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He has a new perspective on life. His heart is now changed. He's had a heart transplant, if you want to use that illustration. <clears throat> and what effect does that have? We're going to look at that in just a second. But let me stop and ask you this question as you apply it to your heart. Is your heart truly, have you found yourself in a place where your heart truly longs for the Lord? And have you found yourself as desperate as Zacchaeus to look for that change in your life, to come to Jesus for that change in your life. <clears throat> Here's the deal. If you come to Christ, your heart will be changed. He doesn't leave anyone the same who calls out to him. It will be changed. Now, let's look at the evidence of the change. Jesus will set our new heart in commitment to him. Once our heart is new, what does it look like? Well, it's committed to him. See, Zacchaeus, what we see in our narrative is he's going to make a costly commitment. Not only is the heart going to be changed inside, but we're going to see how it's changed on the outside. The, the, the inner change of a heart is worked out by the external work of the hands and of the mouth and of the eyes and of the body. What do we know that Zacchaeus' heart has changed, his actions changed? Look at verse number 8, because Zacchaeus is going to make a very costly heart decision. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, as people were saying, man, he's a sinner. Why would you go and be with him? Immediately he's under conviction, and Zacchaeus says, look, I will give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'm going to pay back four times as much as I've stole. You know what he just did? He bankrupted himself. He financially bankrupted himself that day. Because under, under uh, Mosaic law, if a thief voluntarily confessed to taking somebody, to taking something, he had to restore what he took and then give that one-fifth of the value added to it if he voluntarily confessed. So really what Zacchaeus should have done was says, I'll give back everything I took and I'll add one-fifth to it. I'll pay that. All right? Here's what it says as well. <clears throat> And they also had to bring a trespass offering to the Lord. If they stole something, but they could not restore what they stole, then they had to repay fourfold. And if he was caught with the goods on him, he was caught red-handed, then they had to repay double of that. Zacchaeus didn't quibble over the terms of the law. He took the highest punishment possible. And he paid it all. What he did was he bankrupted himself that day. He went from being the richest man to probably... Probably one of the poorest men. It left with nothing. He bankrupted his bank account, but his heart was now filled with the riches of God's grace. The decision to follow Christ 
like I said, more than likely bankrupted Zacchaeus, but now he was following the Lord. And to him, that was a good trade. That was a good deal. Zacchaeus lost everything and he gained through sinful greed and vengeance that day, but he gained so much more through forgiveness in Christ. See, when tax collectors came to be baptized, when they came to be converted, even back in John the Baptist days, we see a record of this back in Luke chapter 3. Here's what many tax collectors would come and they were under conviction just like Zacchaeus was and says, what do I need to do to cleanse myself of the guilt and the shame that I have? And here's what John the Baptist would say to them while they're in the water. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked them, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized to do. Lines right up with what Jesus said when they said, what do we do about our taxes? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He says, if you're going to be a tax collector, the way to turn the PR on tax collectors is just to be fair and just with what you do. So if Rome says collect this, collect that, and not a penny more. I want you to imagine how that plays out for Zacchaeus from this day forth. If they know that he's a changed man and he comes and he says, hey, here's what Rome is charging. I'm sorry that I have to charge you this, but I promise you I'm not charging a penny more than what Rome requires. All of a sudden... Instead of Zacchaeus coming to the door and them hiding, they're probably wanting Zacchaeus rather than any other tax collector in there because they know he's going to be honest with them. But what it also did was it showed a complete dependence on God. A complete dependence on him saying, hey, I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be underhanded anymore. See, when Jesus changes your heart, it has an effect on other people too. When Jesus changes our heart, everything will change. You see, our eternal destination changes. We talk about that. If you want to go to heaven when you die, trust Jesus as your Savior. That's wonderful. And that is ultimately the goal. And we're going to enjoy that benefit longer than we enjoy anything else here on earth. But the other benefit that takes place is we now have a friend that sits closer than a brother that we walk with and we talk with, and he becomes our Lord, and he leads us, and he guides us, and he protects us, and he provides for us. And through what he does in us, he reaches other people who are lost. That's why our story is important. That's why it's important that we share our story. And that we share our story more than just through our words, but also through our actions. You see, I, I, I dare think to say that there's a lot of Christians today that if their co-workers found out they were Christians, they'd be shocked. Because they see no difference. And I'm not talking about like outside differences. I'm talking about the way we are, just the kind of people we are. Does the character of Christ exude from the way we live? Does, does the, when we walk, when we, we walk and talk in this world, are we literally like that salt and are we like that light? And do we carry with us the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go? Zacchaeus was a man that day that I believe from that day forward carried the fragrance of Christ everywhere he went. And the people that were there that day were probably changed because of what they saw. And the question is, does God, are, are people seeing that through us? And when we share our story, and we have a story like that, and I don't say, I'm not meaning you have to have a story just like Zacchaeus, but every one of us, if we are saved, we have that story. When our hearts swung wide to the grace of God, and man, he invaded and changed and rearranged everything in our heart. And as we close out this morning, the challenge is if he has not done that in your life, if you haven't had that moment where you swung your heart wide open and you received him and said, you know what, come what may, I want you as Lord of my life. Man, let today be that day. Be changed forever.
be changed forever by him and have that story that we can only have in him. I want to close out by looking at one thing here. Back in the verse, back in cha- uh, chapter 18. <clears throat> and guys, this one's not going to be on the screen, so I apologize for that. But we're going to read uh, verses 9 through, uh, 9 through 14. The Bible talks about tax collectors just a chapter before Jesus was telling a parable. And what I find interesting is just the chapter before he enters into uh, Jericho, he tells this parable about tax collectors. I just find that funny. But Jesus is telling this, this, tax, this, this parable. He says, when he, it, in verse number 9, he says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they looked down on everybody else. Jesus said, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other one was a tax collector, which we've already established tax collectors not looked very highly upon, right? The Pharisee, in verse number 11, was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy and unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I get. But now we see this comparison. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he kept striking his chest, which was a sign of Jewish sign of regret and humility. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This was the attitude that Zacchaeus had that day as well. And we can live our lives in one of two ways. We can live our lives with the eyes of the Pharisee that looks around and says, you know what, I'm better off than that guy, so I must be doing pretty good. Or we can be like Zacchaeus who says, I don't care what anybody else gets, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. So as we close our eyes and as we bow our heads this morning and we go to a time of, uh, of reflection, <clears throat> stop for a moment and just ask this question. Am I saved? Do I know Christ as my Savior? And if you answer that question, yes, ask yourself this. Has my heart been changed? Am I living with a changed heart? If not, I'm not saying that you haven't been saved. That's, please don't hear me say that. What I am saying is, where did, where did you kind of like let your heart just kind of shrivel up with Jesus again? When did you kind of take back authority over that heart? You see, Jesus is not just our Savior. We're talking about this in our men's Bible study on, on Friday. Jesus is not just our Savior. He's the Lord and Savior. See, a lot of us, we want Jesus to take us to heaven, and we're thankful for that. But he's also our Lord, and he wants to be our Lord while we're on our way there. Have we surrendered to him completely? Today, if you're here this morning, you say, I've, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. And man, looking at Zacchaeus, I see, I see myself in Zacchaeus, man. And I need Jesus. You don't have to climb down from a tree. All you have to do is get up from a chair. Come today, talk to myself, Pastor Chris, one of the elders, somebody who invited you, whatever. We can show you. You swing that door, that, the door of your heart open and trust him as your Savior. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about having a fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, or you would like to know more about our church, you can visit us again at our website, lhfellowship.com. Or if you would like and you are in the Lexington area, please feel free on Sundays to stop by and worship with us. Our services are held each Sunday at 1015 a.m. We would love to see you there. Until next time. 
Take care and walk in the way of grace.